pain and pleasure. Pain and pleasure. These two separate experiences, these two separate emotions, they have the ability to cause funky things in our hearts and in our minds and our souls. And what we're going to see here in Hezekiah's personal life is he's going to experience some pain. In fact, pain to such a degree that he's going to get so sick that he's, he's on his deathbed. He, he's not up and moving around. He, he's, he's not living life to its fullest. He is on his back in a bed, staring at the ceiling, sick, can't move. He's going to recover. We read that part. He's also going to experience some pleasure later. He's going to experience some flattery. He's going to get some free stuff, and it's going to be fun. And he is going to fall headlong into it and enjoy it. My main idea for you today is this, is that in moments of personal pain and tempting pleasure, it can be easy to doubt God's goodness and to forget our allegiance to him. We must remember it is Jesus' faithfulness to us and not our faithfulness to him that is the guarantee of our salvation. We're going to see in Hezekiah, I hope all of us today, and then we're going to see in Jesus the hope for all of us today. Amen? Let's begin. Hezekiah, excuse me, Isaiah chapter 1. In those days Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death, and Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said, Thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die, you shall not recover. Isaiah, a man who brings good news. Uh, personal circumstances have just changed pretty majorly, dramatically for Hezekiah. He's experienced great blessing from God thus far in his life. God, through Isaiah, has prophesied the disgrace and embarrassment of the Assyrian Empire. In fact, the enemy nation's king will end up being killed by his own sons while worshiping a false god in his temple. The external opposition of the Assyrian Empire showed us that Hezekiah was a leader worth following. He was a man who turned to prayer and trusted God with the outcome of the external opposition of the threat of violence and war upon Jerusalem and the kingdom of Judah. Hezekiah trusted in the Lord and trusted in the Lord's ways. But now Isaiah arrives and does not bring good news. Hezekiah has grown sick and ill to the point of death, and Isaiah delivers stunning news. And here it is. Isaiah's message from the Lord to Hezekiah in his moment of sickness is this. Set your house in order. That is, get your stuff together, man. Make sure your 401k beneficiary is listed. Make sure the mortgage is paid off. Make sure you know who's going to follow you in line. Make sure who you know who's going to get what. Set everything you can in order. Make your final preparations. Say your goodbyes. Leave nothing unsaid that needs to be said. Leave nothing undone that needs to be done. Set your house in order because the second part of the message is you shall die. Now, while this is not great news, because we all know that other than Christ himself, we will all experience death as a finality in this life, what is surprising or shocking to Hezekiah is the immediacy of it, which is the third part. You're not going to recover. You're not going to recover, Hezekiah. Any hope you have of springing out of bed, of running around and playing with your grandchildren, of getting up and seeing the sunset, of traveling, of experiencing the joy and blessing of the physical salvation of the kingdom, all of that is over for you. You won't recover. There's nothing you can do, Hezekiah. There's no secret tonic. There's no medicine. There's no doctor. There's, there's no physician that can come and make you better. You won't recover. Now, well, admittedly, this is a depressing message 
what I want us to see is I want us to see the gift of grace that God has in this bad news. See, he's providing Hezekiah with the knowledge of his own end so that he might rightly order his life before his death. That, my friends, is a gift of grace from God. Hezekiah could be lying in bed sick, hoping to get better, not knowing if he is or not, and leave all of these things undone, leave all of these things unsaid. Hezekiah has been given the opportunity from God to rightly order his house and his life and meet with his family and make known his wishes and convey his affection for them. All of that before he's done. He knows this is the moment. God is giving him a beautiful, wonderful opportunity to steward his own death. Not everybody gets that. Not everybody gets that. Our family didn't get to experience that with my dad's death. It was too quick. It was too quick. We had just enough time to tell him that we loved him. He had just enough time to tell us that he loved us. But there was a ton of stuff left out of order that we've, we've walked through together. Not everybody gets that. Hezekiah gets that from God. What a gift. Because honestly... We're all going to be like Hezekiah one day. If, I don't mean to be the bearer of bad news, and maybe you didn't come here to hear that today, but today, there's going to be a moment where you're going to die. If you didn't hear this yet, I don't want to be the bearer of bad news, but that's legit. <laughs> one day, you're going to share Hezekiah's fate. So let me ask you, if you knew your days were numbered, if you had the news that, hey, next Thursday or 10 years from now or 50 years from now, your death was imminent, what would you do? How would you live? What would become priority? When Hezekiah experienced external opposition, he became steadfast in prayer. Right? When the Assyrian army was knocking at the door, he took the problem straight to the temple, laid face down before God and said, God, I don't have the ability to rescue us from this, but you do. Would you do so for your own glory so that the other nations would know you're the Lord and you're bigger than any empire? He trusted the sovereign will and ways and word of God when there was external opposition. What's he going to do now that he has to endure interior, inside, personal opposition? He's sick. He's going to die. Verse 2. Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord. Again, Hezekiah's sick. He's laying in bed. Isaiah brings the, the bad news message. And, and for me, as I read this, Hezekiah is overwhelmed by it. And so he turns away from Isaiah. Turns away from everyone and just faces the wall, and, he, and he's, and he's going to go to God again. But listen to the words of his prayer this time, verse 3. And he said, Please, O Lord, remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. Now, Hezekiah turns to prayer. He, he, he is coherent enough. He, he, he's experienced God's presence enough. He knows that his only recourse, if anything can change his fate, it's going to be God. Even hearing from God himself that he's going to die, that he's not going to recover, he still pleads to God. But I want you to see and hear the content of Hezekiah's prayer. Hezekiah is praying, God, don't you remember what I've done? Don't you remember, God, that I, I was doing everything you asked. I was doing everything with a whole heart. I was committed to you and following your ways and doing everything that was good in your sight. And now I've got to die? We know this because of the next line that Isaiah records for us. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. 
These, these aren't like normal tears, like when you get misty at a sad movie or, or, or something happy happened. These are those wet, hot, bitter tears. If you're a Dodger fan this week, you cried these tears, right? Like together, Wednesday night, we were in this. You just know that's these hot, bitter, frustrated, angry, not sure what to do, doubting everything you thought was true tears. And Hezekiah is right in the middle of that. He's bitter toward life, frustrated with God, which begs the question, what might the Lord remove from you that would cause you to doubt his goodness and become bitter toward life? What might the Lord remove from you that would cause you to doubt his goodness and become bitter in this life? For Hezekiah, it's his personal health. It's the end of his life. We're going to see through Hezekiah's prayer and even in the next chapter, Hezekiah has a disproportionate affection for this side of eternity. He loves this life. And while that is not a bad thing in and of itself, this life is not an end in and of itself. Amen? We know as Christians, we're here, we're present. Why? Because we believe that the, 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 the little dash between your birth date and your end date is not all there is. That we believe there is something more, that there is an eternity and you will spend it in the glorious presence of God or you will spend it in the justice-filled judgment of God, but you will spend it. Hezekiah has become disproportionately affectionate toward this life or this side of eternity. And so he's frustrated and he's bitter because it's coming to an end. Verse 4, then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah. Go and say to Hezekiah, thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Just underline that sentence right there and know that we have a God that hears our prayers and sees our tears. That in and of itself is a whole nother comforting sermon for us. But just know that just like Hezekiah, you have a God who knows when you're suffering and hears you when you pray and knows when you cry those bitter tears. God continues through Isaiah, Behold, I will add 15 years to your life. I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria and will defend this city. This shall be the sign to you from the Lord that the Lord will do this thing that he has promised. Verse 8, Behold, I will make the shadow cast by the declining of the sun on the dial of Ahaz turn back 10 steps. So the sun turned back on the dial the 10 steps by which it had declined. Our God is more powerful than Cher. Amen? That's because God can turn back time and Cher could not. See? You got it. You got it. Just come on, man. Work with me here. These are the jokes. I know you guys got it right there. So here's the deal. God answers Hezekiah's prayer. Here's the best news. Hezekiah, you're going to get 15 more years. And oh, by the way, in addition to answering that prayer, I'm also going to keep my promise to save you and the city from the Assyrian Empire. I'm going to smash them and rescue you. I, the Lord, will defend this city. What a great line by God. He knows what he's doing. And then he gives Hezekiah this wonderful, beautiful, amazing miracle. How did God do it? We don't know. That's the point of a miracle. It is an inexplainable, superimposing of God's power on the natural order. So what we have here is the sundial, and the sun is cast upon it, and what God's going to do is he's going to move the shadow backwards 10 steps. That, time doesn't work that way. Shadows don't work that way. They don't rewind, okay? But God's going to do that. 
He provides this miraculous sign to prove to Hezekiah that he, he literally says and shows that he's going to turn back the clock on his life 15 years and rescue the city. What we have here in the next uh, collection of verses here in chapter 38 is we have Hezekiah's writing in response to God's action. So we're, we're going to get further insight, and what I want to do is that we're going to work our way through this pretty quickly, but what I want us to be listening to, I want us to be listening to Hezekiah's mindset, what he's thinking. I want us to be listening for Hezekiah's emotions, what, he, what is he feeling, and I want to look at his actions, because he, what we're going to see is his mindset, his heart set, and, and his actions in response to his sickness and recovery. And what we're going to be challenged by is how quickly Hezekiah reveals his affection for this life, and how how much of a, a sway it held over him, even greater than his affection and loyalty for God. Verse 9, a writing of Hezekiah, king of Judah, after he had been sick and recovered from his sickness. I said, in the middle of my days, I must depart. Like, Hezekiah, from Hezekiah's perspective, he's in the middle of his life. He's in his prime. He's, he's going for it. And now he must depart. He's faced with his own death. He continues, I am consigned to the gates of Sheol for the rest of my years. I said, I shall not see the Lord, the Lord in the land of the living. I'm not going to spend time with God anymore. I'm not going to see what God's doing in the land of the living. I'm going to be stuck in Sheol, the, kind of the, the spiritual holding tank, waiting for the Messiah. Verse 12, my dwelling is plucked up and removed from me like a shepherd's tent. What, a, what an honor, like... What a metaphor to use. Okay, shepherds, they move their tent where? Wherever the sheep are grazing, right? And it'll be one place for a little bit. It's a temporary dwelling place. It says, that's what my life feels like, God. It feels like a temporary dwelling place. And the Lord's like, yes, that's exactly what it is. Get your perspective. But for Hezekiah, he's like, man, it feels arbitrary. Like one night we're over here because that's where the sheep are and we're grazing. And then I'm going to pluck up my shepherd's tent and then I'm going to move it over here and that's where they're going to graze. And then we're going to move again in three months and then we're going to be over here. He said, my life feels that way, God. Like you're just plucking it up arbitrarily based on the season. He continues with another illustration. He says, like a weaver, I have rolled up my life. He cuts me off from the loom. Like, like a great weaver of a, of a beautiful garment that, that's done with my string or particular color or textile pattern or print, God. You're just, you're cutting me off and I want to be a part of what you're doing in this life. He continues, from day to night, you bring me to an end. I calmed myself until morning like a lion, he breaks all my bones. From day to night, you bring me to an end. Like a swallow or a crane, I chirp. I moan like a dove. My eyes are weary with looking upward. Oh Lord, I am oppressed. Be my pledge of safety. What shall I say? Verse 15. For he has spoken to me and he himself has done it. Who is Hezekiah blaming for his death? God, right? Like he sees God's sovereignty and action both in his life and also in the events of death. That, that is a right view of God that Hezekiah has. What he's frustrated with is the fact that God's doing it. He says, God, you've got every right to do it. You are doing it. You're the lion and you're breaking my bones. I'm like a, like a dove and I moan or like a swallow. I, I just chirp. I'm just a chirping bird at this point. But be my pledge of safety. He continues, I will walk slowly all my years because of the bitterness of my soul. He has, again, this is Hezekiah's interpretation of what's coming after his death. 
He's just going to walk slowly and be bitter and frustrated because of all the things he's missing out on in this life. Verse 16, O Lord, by these things men live, and in all these is the life of my spirit. Restore to me health and make me live. Listen to that. Listen to what Hezekiah says. O Lord, by these things men live. God, is it not the affection and the goal of all men to live and have strength and vigor and vibrancy in their life? Restore to me my health and make me live. Again, Hezekiah's affections are disproportionate. He's not satisfied with God's will and way and word in his own death. Fully accepting of it when it comes to defending the empire from the Assyrians. God, your wills, your ways, show us. But God, in my own death, can't you postpone it? Can't you just a little longer? God, don't you see all the men of the earth, all they want to do is be healthy and live. Why can't you just give me some of that? Verse 17, behold, and here's here's probably the greatest insight into Hezekiah's heart and mind. Behold, it was for my welfare that I had great bitterness. God, I'm just frustrated and bitter that this is the life you've given me, that you've decided to cut my days short. But in love, you have delivered my life from the pit of destruction. So now we're on the other side of God's answered prayer here, right? We're on the other side of Isaiah bringing the good news. Hey, God's going to give you 15 extra years. Hezekiah continues in his writing. You have delivered my life from the pit of destruction, for you have cast all my sins behind my back. For Sheol does not thank you. Death does not praise you. Those who go down to the pit do not hope for your faithfulness. The living, the living, he thanks you as I do this day. The Father makes known to the children your faithfulness. Here's what he's saying. God, thank you for the extra years because the people who die, they can't worship you. Only the living can. So thanks for giving me some more life so that I can worship you. God, dead fathers do not pass on discipleship to their children. Only living fathers can do that. So thank you for the opportunity. Verse 20, then the Lord will save me and we will play music on stringed instruments all the days of our lives at the house of the Lord. Here's, here's Hezekiah's retirement plan for the next 15 years. He's going to be in a band. And he's going to play worship. He's going to go to the house of the Lord, and he's going to play stringed instruments, and he's going to worship. Verse 21, he's going to pick up guitar. Verse 21, now Isaiah had said, let them take a cake of figs and apply it to the boil that he may recover. This is an interesting thing, right? Here's why. Hezekiah says, or Isaiah says, hey, go and take some figs, bake a cake, bake a, like a treat, a cupcake, and go put it on a boil that Hezekiah is suffering. Why would Isaiah do that? Here's why. Verse 22. Hezekiah also had said, what's the sign that I shall go up to the house of the Lord? Hezekiah all of a sudden needs, needs to know. God's word through Isaiah all of a sudden was not enough. He needed a sign too. Again, we, we can see just kind of Hezekiah's personal affection for this life is disproportionate to his understanding of eternity, disproportionate to the value of his relationship with God and what he'll get to do forever. And so he says, hey, Isaiah, I, I trust God said it. I believe it's going to happen, but, but I'm sure God gave you a sign. There's going to be something that God wants you to do so that I could know, right? And says, yes, we're going we're gonna to uh, uh, get you a cupcake uh, we're going to get you a Twinkie, and we're going to smash it on one of your uh, sores, and it's going to be healed, and that'll be the sign that you know. So Hezekiah experiences that. Verse, or excuse me, chapter 39. So that, that's kind of the, the pain that Hezekiah endures in chapter 38. We can kind of see that personally, he's enamored with this life. 
Verse, or chapter 39 is going to cement that for us. Chapter 39. At that time, so after the recovery of Hezekiah, the, the fig cake has been baked, it's been applied, Hezekiah has been healed. At that time, Merodach, Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he had heard that he had been sick and had recovered. So we've got this foreign nation, Babylon, introduced here. And, we, and they've, they've got the son of the king and some emissaries, some of their, their political bigwigs, some of the famous people from Babylon, they're, the, the ambassadors, they're going to be sent to Hezekiah, and they're going to bring letters of encouragement from this foreign nation, and they're going to bring some free stuff. They're going to bring some swag to Hezekiah, and they're going to lay it as fit. Why? Because they heard, man, Hezekiah, the king of Judah, Jerusalem, he was, he was sick, but he's been recovered. So we're going to send him some free stuff, and we're going to send him some encouraging letters. Now, this all sounds great, but if you know your Bible, you know that Babylon is an enemy nation of God's people. You know that in the book of Revelation, Babylon will seek as a symbol of all the totality of the worldly philosophy and worldly governments wrapped up into one, and it is held in opposition to God and his people and his government and his kingdom. That's who's come to call, is the great enemy nation, Babylon. But notice how they come. They don't come like the Assyrian empires. They don't come all swole up, ready to fight. No, no, they come subtly with the friendly whispers. Assyrian tried to muscle their way into intimidation, and Hezekiah turned to the Lord. Babylon will begin with subtle flattery and seduction. See, sometimes our opposition, sometimes Satan, he doesn't always present himself like an enemy. Sometimes he comes as flirtatious, seductress, and a false friend. And that's what Babylon is here. It's a false friend. Hey, we heard the king was sick. We just want to check on him. Is he doing all right? We got some free stuff for him. We want to share some of our wealth and prizes and cash. We just want to make sure he's doing okay. We, we, we got some warm soup and we got some crackers and 7-Up. We just want to make sure he's doing all right. Verse 2. And Hezekiah welcomed them gladly. Sure, I'm doing great. Look at me. God's restored me. He's given me 15 extra years, guys. I'm doing great. Watch this. I can do 10 push-ups, 10 jump jacks. I'm feeling awesome. Come on in. Verse 2, and he showed them his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his whole armory, all that was found in his storehouses. Hezekiah is welcoming these guys in like they're long-lost family. These are the emissaries and the son of the king of an enemy nation. He's like, hey guys, come on in. Check it out. Look what I got in here. I'm going to start a live stream from the inside of my vault. He starts broadcasting on his social security number on Instagram. He's Snapchatting the balance of his checking account to the whole world. Guys, check out all this stuff that I've got. He's invited the wolf into the hen house is what he's done. Gladly. Guys, look at all this stuff God gave me. Look at all this stuff we've accumulated. Isn't it awesome? This is fantastic. Verse 3, Then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say? And from where did they come to you? Hezekiah said, They've come to me from a far country, from Babylon. Isaiah said, What have they seen in your house? Hezekiah answered, They've seen all that is in my house. There's nothing in my storehouses that I did not show them. It's almost comical. Almost. 
I mean, if this were the scene at the movie, in the movies, you'd be like screaming at the television, screaming at the screen, no, don't go in there. But the truth is, when we're in the midst of allowing the pleasure of this life to become fixated by our souls, we can't hear nothing. If this has ever been you, if you've ever been allured by the pleasure of the world and allowed it to divert you from following God, you know this. You can't hear nothing. You're too enamored with what the world's got to offer, this temporary pleasure in this life. Listen, if sin wasn't fun, we wouldn't do it. The problem is we forget all the painful, ugly consequences. And that's what's going on here for Hezekiah. Again, he's enamored with this life. So when he's got these emissaries and these royal officials from a foreign nation and they want to come check on him, he's flattered by that. It's like, hey guys, come on in. Look at me, I'm doing great. I'm doing so great. Look at all the stuff I got. Check it out. Isaiah confronts him and says, hey, where are these guys from again? And what do they say to you? And what did you show them? And then Hezekiah repeats, there's nothing in my storehouses that I did not show them. Hezekiah's actions are repeated because of their folly. It's so that we understand Babylon, the son of the king of an enemy nation, has just seen all of the riches of this tiny little city. Who, by the way, what did Assyria do to them? Oh, that's right. Assyria stamped out all of their external defenses. So we have the capital city of God's nation, Judah, sitting there like a crown jewel, and the king has just shown the royal officials from an enemy empire everything that he has because they said a few nice things to him because they gave him some free stuff. Verse 5. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away. And they shall be eunuchs. When you hear that word, think sterilized, castrated, in the place of the king of Babylon. Excuse me, in the palace of the king of Babylon. Verse 8. And, and here's just, here's the hard part. Verse 8. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. What did Isaiah just say? Hezekiah, all that, free, all that stuff that you just showed all them, by the way, that's not going to stay here. Babylon is going to come, they're going to raid the city, and they're going to carry all of your stuff, all of your dad's stuff, and all of your granddad's stuff is going to carry its way back to the empire of Babylon. And what's more, Hezekiah, not just your stuff, but your sons, some of whom you will have fathered, they're going to be carried away, and they're going to be castrated, and they're going to serve at the feet of the enemy king in the nation of Babylon, Hezekiah. Your family legacy is going to be severely damaged. You're going to lose out on grandchildren because of the nation of Babylon. Hezekiah says, the word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. Why? For he thought, there will be peace and security in my days. I don't want to assert generational arrogance, right? Because we're all Hezekiah, if we were truly honest. 
But I, I just, I can't imagine the twisted nature of sin infecting my heart so bad that I would trade the days of my grandchildren for peace and security for myself. But that's what Hezekiah has done, and that is the awful, wicked nature of sin. Because it's the truth. Hezekiah gets 15 extra years. He gets an opportunity to leave a godly legacy for generations with 15 years. And he exchanges that for the flattery and affirmation of an enemy nation. Begs this question this morning. What could the world offer you that would cause you to give up a godly legacy? For Hezekiah, it was flattery and attention and free stuff from an enemy nation, affirmation in this life. It was peace and security in his own life to the detriment of the life of others. Because if we were truly honest, you and I are like Hezekiah. When we allow the pain we experienced in this life, like he did, to cause us to doubt God's goodness, or we allow the temporary pleasure of the world to cause us to trade the worship of the Creator for the worship of the creation, we're just like Hezekiah. We allow the pain and difficult circumstances to doubt God's goodness. Is God good today because things are going well, and is God not good tomorrow because you face a, a, a challenge? What is it that, might, that the Lord might remove from you that would cause you to doubt His goodness? Is it your personal health, the health of a relative, a family member, the loss of a child, the loss of a job, the loss of a home, the loss of an income? What, would, what, what could it be that the Lord would remove from you to, that would cause you to doubt His goodness? Or what temporary pleasure could this world offer you that would cause you to trade a godly legacy? It would cause you to give up worship of God and trade it for the worship of created things. That's the bad news. We're all Hezekiah. We've all done this. But here's the good news today. There is one who is the true and better king. There's the one who, like Hezekiah, was faced with the promise of his own death. But he didn't cry bitter tears but rather he sweat drops of blood in the garden as he submitted his will to the will of his fathers in obedience and trust. His name was Jesus, and he's the true and better king. Matthew 26, 39 tells us, and going a little farther, Jesus fell on his face and prayed, saying, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. That is his own death. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus didn't grow weary and bitter over his own death. He grew faithful and obedient, knowing what his death would mean. But Jesus is the true and better Hezekiah because he too was tempted with the pleasure and glory temporarily of the worldly kingdoms, but he rejected it for the sake of the true kingdom. He's the true and better king. When the leader of an enemy nation offered Jesus the kingdoms of this world, if he would only change his allegiance, he rejected that false glory and held on to the promise of the one true heavenly kingdom. Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, 8 through 10, Jesus said, the word says, Again, the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, and he said to him, All these I have given you, if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Jesus is the true and better king. 
who didn't allow the pain of his own death to take his eye off the will of the Father, which was to use the crucifixion to put to death death and sin, and who used the resurrection to build a kingdom that is more glorious than this world will ever know. This morning, if you're like Hezekiah, if you're like me, and you've allowed pain or pleasure to take your eye and your heart from the things of God, you want to experience the grace and mercy of Jesus and know that it is his grip on you, not your grip on him that saves. You must believe two things and do one thing. The first thing you must believe is that you must be willing to honestly assess yourself and admit that like Hezekiah, your heart is fickle and left to yourself there is no salvation, that you are wholly dependent upon God for rescue. If you're ready to believe that, the next thing you must believe, you must believe that Jesus' death and resurrection are your only means and only guarantee of salvation, that Jesus is not fickle, and he has set his mercy and grace upon your soul. If you will believe these two things, the last thing you must do, you must commit yourself to him. The Bible speaks of this in different ways, but in each case, it's clear. It's an act of our will to say that we believe in Jesus, that we are to place ourselves in his hands. And before I move, I invite you one final time to do that with me right now. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for Jesus. God, who is the true and better. Without whom, God, we are left to our own fickle hearts. God, to the misery and pain of this world. And the false promise of pleasure in it. But God, you've sent your son Jesus to rescue us. And he has perfectly overcome these challenges. God, I pray that for those in this room who like me, God, who like so many of us, have allowed these two experiences, like Hezekiah, to take our hearts from you. Would you give us the grace to believe, to have faith, to trust? Once again, in your goodness, would you replace our doubt with assurance? Would you replace our shame with security? And God, would you glorify yourself in our midst? We love you, Father. Would you receive all that is due to you now in our worship? We ask these things through Christ our Savior.